Welcome to the Preservation Technology Podcast, the show that brings you the people and projects that are advancing the future of America's heritage. I'm Kevin Ammons with the National Park Service's National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. In this edition of the podcast, we join NCPTT's Jeff Ewan as he speaks with Kit Arrington, Digital Library Specialist with the Library of Congress. They will discuss how the Library of Congress digitizes and shares documents for long-term public access. Kit, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I want to start just by asking you how long you've been with the Library of Congress and what actually got you interested in the field of digital preservation? Well, I've been at the library for almost 15 years now. I came in with what was then the National Digital Library Pilot Project. And I'm working now on what has become standard library practice, having digital elements of everyday work. My interest in digital preservation developed along with the library's digital growth and is a natural part of one of our mission mandates, preservation, which extends to the digital formats that are under our care. Now, you coordinate the digital aspects of preparing the very popular HABs, HAIR, and HALS data and documentation for online presentation. Uh, these are very popular programs within the National Park Service. Can you give me just a little bit of description of what they are and what that process is in actually getting those ready for online display? It's with the Habs, Hair, and Howls, um, nothing can be described quickly ever. They're just such rich and wonderful treasures of ours. They're very unique holdings for us because they're active programs and the collections are always growing. They're absolutely one of our most popular collections. They always have been. Now that they're online, it's just wonderful, the new audiences we're reaching. They're being used by students, historians, lifelong learners, everyone. Our collaborative relationship and the high level of cooperation that we enjoy with the Office of the National Park Service that oversees these programs and creates the documentation is very special and unique. Uh, as many of your listeners might know, the Historic American Buildings Survey began over 75 years ago. They recently celebrated their 75th anniversary. They were a works project administration effort to put out-of-work architects to work and document historic properties. And the library and the Department of the Interior were a part of that from the beginning, and it's continued to this day. The Historic American Engineering Record, HAIR, was created in 1969. And the Historic American Landscape Survey began in 2000. Between those three collections, there are now over 39,000 surveys, which contain over 500,000 measured drawings, photographs, and written history pages. The digital conversion process for these materials began in 1996, and I've been working on on them and with them uh, since that time. Uh, When we worked with the National Park Service in 1996 to map their collections management database. They had a database that they just used for tracking their own work. And we took that database and mapped it into, mapped the records into a bibliographic format that could fit with the electronic access to our other collections that was being developed for the World Wide Web. And the next year, uh, 1997, we began a five-year project to scan the collections that we had on site including the new material that was being added quarterly each year and continues to be added quarterly each year. For maximizing the efficiency of the digital conversion of a collection that's this large, because the requirements 
for scanning a typed page or an original medium format black and white negative are very different. We had separate projects to do the history pages, the architectural drawings, and the original negatives, which also included the nitrate negatives from the 1930s. By 2001, we scanned everything that was at the library and had been processed. During the time that we were scanning the collections we had on hand, the Habs Hair House Division of the National Park Service completely revamped their database. Uh, they have been working to add additional information to all of their records, such as subject terms, which have really enriched the records and expanded the way that people can access the information. Um, they transformed their workflow to include digital images of the drawings and the history pages as part of what they transmit to the library. So now, for the, with the quarterly transmittals, we're often able to get accompanying digital images up pretty quickly, um, while before we used to have a year's backlog of processing. It's just it's really sped everything up. We're moving towards the Park Service providing all of the digital images, um, uh, but we're not yet accepting born digital photographs as part of the archival documentation. Though we've begun discussions on that with the Park Service in response to, frankly, the the realities of the de decreasing availability of large format film technology. So that's that's where we stand today. We've come a long way. It took a took a lot of work, um, but it's it's all online and available now. Well, how do you share your digital files so that the largest possible audience can get online and actually use these files? Well, the the digital files of the Princeton Photograph Division collections are made available online through our online catalog. Um, and you can find the catalog at, it's a very simple URL, www.loc.gov slash pictures. That brings you to the Prints and Photographs Division online catalog. And we've actually just recently updated the catalog and made it much more visual. And we're getting a lot of happy people liking the new format. In that catalog, we have item and group level records. And we have thumbnail images for almost all of the collections that have been digitized. That includes photographs, posters, architectural drawings, political cartoons, stereographs, glass negatives, just many, many different formats of material. For a variety of reasons, different rights issues being the most common, for some of the items, the larger digital images are not available off-site. Though you can access them if you come to the library and want to see them online. For the Habs Hair House collections, because they're in the public domain, all of the images are available on the web from a thumbnail image to the highest resolution uncompressed TIFF image. And we, um, as a division, have also explored reaching out through some other venues, um, including our collaboration with Flickr, where we're now posting some of our collections and have had a very well-received response to those. Now are people actually using this information? In Flickr, it's very fun. A lot of, you know, and all the kinds of Flickr groups where you'll have, um, oh, we, we like public signs or and any huge variety of people that have specialized images um, that they're interested in. And they have include a lot of the collections that we've put up. You'll see many, many, many of our images um, are used in Wikipedia when people are illustrating something that they are posting as a as an entry in Wikipedia, that they'll come to the library to find their images to illustrate it. Um, people post our images on their websites. They use them in documentaries, publications, lots of school projects and research projects, some commercial projects. Um, some people have taken some of our images and make them available for sale. 
One of my favorites is a Habs Hair House use, and it's a website that advertises free drawings and plans. And under categories such as build your own barn, <laughs> downloaded all of the architectural drawings from surveys of barns and Habs Hair and Hals and make them available to people. But they fully credit the library as well and let people know the source of the images. And, but I, I just love that. Now, the Library of Congress plays a, an important role worldwide, I think, in making sure that its digital content will be accessible for future generations. How do you determine your archival formats? Well, in the, in the Prints and Photographs Division, when we began our conversion projects in earnest with an RFP that we issued in 1995, we selected the TIFF file format as our archival format. And we continue to monitor changes through time. For example, we've for years been keeping our eye on the JP2 file format, which a number of institutions are beginning to adopt as their archival for format. But currently, TIFF still remains the most widely used and supported file format for archival images. And a big part of sustainability is how many people have adopted it and incorporated it into what they're doing. And it's, it's, it's still the leader there. There's additional information on the library's National Digital Information Infrastructure and Preservation Program website. If I reference that again, I'm just going to call it NDIP. Um, and that's uh, www.digitalpreservation.gov. And that contains an analysis of file formats for the library's use that analyzes their sustainability. So if people want more information about what in particular are the formats we're using and why, there's a much more detailed document available on that website. Okay, well, how is your role changing as more content is born digital? Well, in the, in the Prints and Photographs Division, we're taking the same principles for collection and preservation and access that we've always followed and are applying them to the realm of born digital. So in the same way that we've had to research how best to care for a film negative, we're doing the same for the born digital, but it's a much more active and constantly changing process on our own and taking advantage of the work and efforts of others, such as uh, professional photography associations like um, the ASMP, or uh, there are members of NDIP and folks at the library um, actively involved in something called the Federal Digitization Guidelines Initiative that's analyzing these kinds of things. Using all of those resources, we monitor the changing file formats through time. At this point, we haven't actually accepted a large number of born digital items into our collections and prints and photographs, but only because at this point in time, we haven't had any significant submissions of modern works. But we've had enough to begin to explore and establish workflows for accepting and storing and providing access to them. Um, a group of photojournalist photographs that we collected following 9-11 was one of our first significant born digital acquisitions. Or in another area, we're studying the developing best practices for preserving vector file formats like AutoCAD in anticipation of the eventual inclusion of those kinds of items in our architectural and engineering collections. It's now the rare arch architecture draws by hand. Of course, other parts of the library, um, we have a, a website preservation program with different events through time and major elections or the Olympics that are preserving websites. Uh, we worked collaboratively with um, the Internet Archive in, in their early days um, for the work that they're doing preserving websites. So it's there are issues that we're aware of and collecting as an institution and 
sorting out as we go along and as they change themselves. I'm curious if you have any advice on how smaller heritage preservation organizations are just conscientious individuals um, can make sure their data is saved in an archival format and will last. You know, it's an, it's an interesting point in time where we are right now. It's, it's very comforting to me actually for the likelihood of digital items being preserved through time, how, the awareness of the importance of digital pre preservation has really permeated the consciousness of most preservation organizations and an increasing number of individuals as well. And uh, for cultural organizations in particular, with very little effort, it's easy to find a number of excellent best practice guidelines to follow in whatever area is your area of expertise so that you can become more knowledgeable about the issues to consider to best create and collect and preserve digital objects, whether they're text or images or sound files. I mean, if you, if you just Google, you know, digital preservation or archiving digital images and whatever your area of interest is, photos, sound, I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll get often good hits right away. It's that common now, which is, which is great. And they're good. There's a lot of really good guides out there. In addition to being a resource for private and public and government organizations and institutions, again, the library's INDIT program is starting to offer a new resource to help individuals be more aware of how to preserve their digital items. Um, it's a work in progress. It's a new effort of theirs. But if the library hopes to collect, for example, important photos in the future, we need to help folks understand now what they should be doing to save them so that they're going to be there to collect. Now, speaking on a more personal level, you actually have an interest in other aspects of hands-on historic preservation as well. Tell me a little bit about that. And does it affect your view of the documents and files that you're introducing into the virtual world? My mother had an anthropology background, and she worked in museums, and then she ended her career owning a used bookstore. And I just, I fully credit her love and appreciation of what objects can teach us with my own appreciation of being able to live and learn from the past within the present. And for that reason, I'll, I'll say I, I've, I've always maintained a really healthy skepticism for the longevity of digital objects. I mean, it was a long time before I gave up my film camera for a digital camera. Um, photographs are a perfect example of that. I have boxes of wonderful family photos that are intact and they've just moved through time with our family despite years of not being touched or accessed, and they're treasures. But the digital equi equivalent of family histories that are being created today will require a lot more attention through time to be accessible to future generations. And I think that's their greatest, the greatest threat to their longevity. But because of my joy in accessing these old things today, I really want to be sure that that's going to be true for future generations who want to access the digital files of today. So I'm always questioning the preservation issues. Are our file specifications good enough to move through time? Or how are we backing these up and how are we tracking them? And using another photo example, just as uh, color photo prints have very fragile preservation issues, the color management of a digital file to maintain accurate color representation through time or amongst various hardware and software is really tricky. So, but really these are, these are all the same old issues that we've always addressed in caring for our collections and following the same preservation and access principles that have always guided us, I think we'll make the best choices we can with the digital items to 
hold and care for them too. Yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. That was Jeff Ewan interviewing Kit Arrington of the Library of Congress. If you'd like to learn more about this project, visit our podcast show notes at the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training website. That's ncptt.nps.gov. Until next time, goodbye, everybody. <laughs>